blessed are thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. See the wisdom. Pray for us. Spirit. Amen. Well, we had reached an unpleasant point at the end of last week's lecture. We had seen what happened when the of the crucial term hypostasis developed by St. Basil the Great was applied not inside the Trinity where we're fine, but to the case of our Lord. So in Christology, the theology of the incarnation. Now you recall that Basil says that a hypostasis which was in Latin a persona, a person, is common nature plus individuating traits. However, when this definition of this important technical term was applied in Christology, we came up with a problem. In Christ, we have, on the divine side, oh, let's write the whole word here. Oh my goodness, this gets worse and worse. We have the common divine nature. That is to say, the nature that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all have. Shared. That is what common means. We have a common nature plus the individuating trait of sonship. Because it's only God the Son who becomes incarnate, right? So we have everything present to say that there is in Christ a divine hypostasis. Or in or Latinate phraseology, divine person. Good. Fine. Perfectly orthodox. Now we turn to the human side. And on the human side, what do we have in Christ? Well, we have the common human nature. He was a man like us in all things but sin, says Hebrews chapter 4. So he's got the common human nature. But, okay, he did not become incarnate as some sort of abstraction, but rather along with all of the individuating traits of Jesus of Nazareth, son of Mary, and so on. Correct? Yes. I, we have the individuating traits of Jesus. Now, according to the definition, that should give us, alongside the divine hypothesis in Christ, a human hypothesis. And this will not do. Because, as we saw last time, Looking at the condemnation of Nestorius at the Council of Ephesus in 431, the idea of two hypostases or persons in Christ is rejected. Well, how are we going to avoid the Nestorian outcome? As I said at the end of the last talk, Basil's definition, when applied to Christology, led straight to Nestorianism. Now Nestorianism is condemned. The only thing to do is, well, there are two things you could do. We could look again at the mystery of our Lord's humanity. We could look again at the mystery of his divinity to see if there's a solution that way. Or thirdly, well, second, general approach, we could look at the definition of hypostasis. 
maybe it's wrong. Eh? Well, suppose we said you don't have two hypostases there. You know why? Because he doesn't have the fullness of the divine nature. He's only got something like the divine nature. Oops. Arianism, somebody said it. That won't work. So let's concentrate on the mystery of his human side. Maybe we can avoid positing a second and human hypothesis by giving him a hole in his human nature. Maybe his human nature was not complete. If he didn't have a whole human nature, he wouldn't be a human hypothesis, right? All right. Was this idea put forward? Oh, yes. According to this solution, he had part of human nature with the individual traits of Jesus of Nazareth. In its most radical form, this position was advanced in the 360s and 370s by a man named Apollinarius from the region of Laodicea. All right, so this idea comes from A-P-O-L-L-I-N-A-R-I-U-S. Apollinarius of Laodicea. Laodicea, by the way, is, I don't know if you can see this, if you see where the coast turns the corner from Turkey and comes down into Syria, right in that corner is Laodicea. Okay, Paul and Eric's from there, and he says, look, you and I need a human, rational, intellectual soul so that we can think, choose, perform mental activities, and so on and so on. Jesus didn't need that. He didn't need that. Because he had within him the eternal Son of God. The eternal Son is a spiritual being. Okay? And when becoming man, all he does is take on the flesh. After all. What does it say in the Nicene Creed? Et incarnatus est de spiritus sancti. Incarnatio is a fancy word taken from caro, carnis, the flesh in Latin. What the Son of God did is take flesh. So he takes the body part of our nature, but not the rational soul which he didn't need. Okay. You can imagine how surprised I was. This is going back about, oh gee, this is going back about 30 years. I ran into a nest of Apollinarians <laughs> in Oregon. In Oregon. I, I was out there giving lectures. Uh, it's basically sponsored by a very orthodox Catholic newspaper. And I was out there to give lectures to people who were, you know, wanted to hear the straight stuff. They were very upset by all of the liberal nonsense that was flooding the Catholic schools in those days. They were particularly annoyed when their children would come home from catechism or CCD and tell them, you know, Mama, there was a time Jesus didn't know who he was. <laughs> when he woke up from the dead, he was surprised. <laughs> you know. All right. And there is, but of course he knew. He was God. So they used his divinity, these parents did, they used his divinity to defeat the liberal argument for ignorance in Jesus. 
I said to them, well, certainly he knew everything in his divine nature. But what about in his human nature? After all, he had a human intellect, didn't he? Okay. Now he enjoys the beatific vision in his human intellect. So don't worry. He knows plenty in his human intellect. But we don't say that our Lord is exactly omniscient in his human intellect. Well, these folks were very upset with me. <laughs> they weren't sure that they should agree that Jesus had ever had a human intellect. Well, fortunately, I had my good old copy of the, you know, dogmatic definitions of the church along, and we could look it up and find it out. Okay. The fact of the matter is that Apollinarius's position was condemned. Okay. It was condemned as early as 380, shortly before the First Council of Constantinople. It had been condemned in the East, and it was also condemned in Rome. And as a matter of fact, there's a very interesting letter that we have from the year 382, when um, the, uh, the ink was hardly dry yet on um, the uh, First Council of Constantinople. And uh, Pope Damasus wrote a letter to um, the Bishop of Antioch. It's called the Tome of Damasus. D-A-M-A-S-U-S. He's a great man. I hope we have another Pope Damasus one of these days. It's a good name for somebody. Is he Spider? Maybe. I don't know what his ethical background was. Anyway. Listen to Anathema number seven in this letter of Pope Damasus to the Patriarch of Antioch. We anathematize those who say that the Word of God acted in human flesh in the place of man's rational and intellectual soul. Since, in fact, the Son and Word of God did not act for the rational soul in his body, but rather took on our soul in order to save it. He took on our soul without sin. Okay. So the idea that Christ had no human soul and thus didn't have a whole human nature is condemned already in 382. And it's mentioned again in several old synods. It will be mentioned in the Second Council of Constantinople, which we're not going to, uh, to get to in this series. And repeatedly whenever the issue came up. And the church always had the same reason to condemn this theory. And uh, if you don't mind, I'll just give you the reason from the same um, hero of mine, Pope Damasus. He says, look, the Lord says, this is Matthew 18, 11, the Son of Man came to save that which was perishing. Well, the whole man in soul and in body in sense and in the whole nature of his substance was perishing. So, if it was the whole man in all these ways who was perishing, it has to be the case that Christ took on what needed to be saved in order to save it. And uh, this, this doctrine will be repeated many, many times by other fathers. It's a simple doctrine. What, what our Lord did not take on is not saved. Okay. He took on our very flesh.
flesh that proves that our bodies are saved. He took on our kind of soul, and that proves that our souls are saved. It's not just the soul that's saved and the body may go to hell. No. The body is to be is to be saved. Thus, we look forward to the resurrection, right? He takes on the will, he takes on the mind, everything that can, everything with which we can sin. He takes on without sin so as to save the whole. Yes. So if we're going to believe in a complete salvation for human beings, we cannot have merely a part of human nature in Christ. We're going to have to have a whole thing. Wow. All right. Yeah, let's try it. No, let's try it this time. There we that's go. That's, that's bad. bad. He's got the whole common human nation. So that's approach is out. Now, you would think that once Apollinarius had been condemned, the attempt to head off a second and human hypothesis in Christ by this means would be obsolete. But it was revived later, beyond our time frame. The idea was to make a smaller hole in our Lord's human nature. Okay. This heresy was called monothelitism. And it means that while Christ had a soul, oh yeah, 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 he did not have a will in that soul. Monothelitism is the idea that there was just one will in Christ. Just one will. He had a, he had a, a, a human mind alongside his divine mind, yes. And of course a human body and so on and so on. But he did not have a human will alongside his divine will. Rather, he acted by and through the divine will. So said this position. It was called monothelitism. And it was condemned in 681 at the Third Council of Constantinople. And really, it had no theological or intellectual merits. Monothelitism was proposed as a political exercise. The Emperor Heraclius, a man to whom I am otherwise devoted, <laughs> great soldier, finally whipped the Persian Empire, got the true cross back, they had come to Jerusalem and stolen it. Heraclius waged war and finally beat the Persians and won it back. Oh, wonderful. But the empire was exhausted at the end of that campaign, and uh, Honorius wanted to make peace with Egypt, where there was another heresy going on. He thought that the way to make progress was to put forward this compromise. Just one will, one little hole in this, that's not a problem. And that becomes a, also a condemned position. And at that point, it becomes absolutely clear to everybody, even Byzantine emperors, that you cannot head off Nestorianism by putting holes in our Lord's human nature. He's got the whole thing. He's got a complete human will. Yes, his complete human will always submits to the divine will in what it wills. But he's got a human will. And that's one of the reasons why his choices in the flesh are meritorious choices. One more little piece of information about getting rid of the H-O-L-E whole theory in human nature. <clears throat> You remember I told you that the creed we say in church on Sunday is actually from the First Council of Constantinople. So little verbal changes from the original creed as written at Nicaea. One of those little verbal changes you say every Sunday morning. Um, et incarnatus est de spiritu sancto, ex Maria, ex Maria Virgine, et homo factus est. 
was made man or became man, those words were inserted at the first council of Constantinople precisely to head off Apollinarianism. He didn't just take flesh, he became man. There it is. That's why, by the way, that's, that's not redundant language in the creed. Incarnatus est et homo factus est. Okay. All right. So, no gaps in our Lord's human nature. Now what? How do we head off Nestorianism? This brings us to the main action of the Council of Chalcedon and the heresy it had to address. There would be a solution okay, if okay, we combined these two natures. Okay. Suppose he's got numerically two sets of individuating traits. One is God and one is man. All right. But as far as nature is concerned, he doesn't have two natures. He's got one combined nature. Okay. To uh, make it look a little bit more... Get rid of all this and say one combined divino hyphen human nature. Okay, get rid of one case of nature there, one there, go right in the middle there. Now we've got one combined divine human nature. This position is called monophysitism. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Is that another heresy? It's another heresy. <laughs> yes. This is monophysitism. Okay. And um, it had its roots in a famous phrase of the very patriarch of Alexandria whom we were celebrating last week the great Cyril of Alexandria, who did us such yeoman service at the Council of Ephesus. One of his favorite phrases was one nature of the word incarnate. Mia physis, one nature, to logo sarcothentos. One nature of the word incarnate. Now what... Let's not worry about what St. Cyril may have meant by that. Because remember, none of these words was all that technical a word in those days. If you think of the word thesis as meaning one living thing, okay, that's true. But if you translate thesis exactly as nature, then you're going to say one nature. Now what you need to know is that St. Cyril's successors in the Sea of Alexandria latched on to that slogan of his and brought it to bear on the Christological problem and began to insist that there is just one nature in Christ. Since there's one nature, you don't end up with two hypotheses, one divine and one human. That's the fix. Does everybody see? Now, I don't want to beat up too much on Alexandria because the most vociferous proponent of the new monophysite position was a deacon from Constantinople, a chap named Eutyches, which means good luck in Greek. <laughs> L-T-K-S, good luck. Eutyches was good luck. Well, his luck turned back sour on him at the Council of Chalcedon, um, of, uh, where he was condemned and all his ilk. Let's write some words up here. Monophysite. Okay. Monophysitism. 
There you go. Monophys, P-H-Y-S-I-T-I-S-M. Monophysitism is what we have on the board here. The helpless you would call the monophysites. Okay. The trouble with this idea, obviously, Let's, let's leave aside the difficult metaphysics here. Okay. Let's leave aside the problem of how the heck you would combine the infinite divine nature with a finite human nature. I mean, exactly how do you put this spiritual thing, to, I mean, how do you put it together? But never mind all that. Let's just stick to the obvious point that if he doesn't have the divine nature, and doesn't have the human nature, but some sort of combined nature, then he's neither God nor man. Hmm? He's neither fish nor fowl. Neither God nor man. Some peculiar mixed entity. The Germans have a word for it, a mischwesen. <laughs> a mixed up thing. That's the common sense objection, right? And this common sense objection was reinforced by the teachings of the fathers of the church who had always talked about the complete humanity of our Lord and the full divinity of our Lord. They weren't about to surrender that by coming up with some sort of first or mixed and for schmaltz nature. Yeah. Blending uh, you know, nature. So now listen to the definition given at the Council of Chalcedon. This is in 451. So it's just um, 20 years after Ephesus. 451. We teach one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We teach Him complete in divinity, complete in humanity, truly God and truly man. We teach Him as man from a rational soul and body consubstantial to the Father in his divinity and consubstantial to us in his humanity in all things except sin. Begotten of the Father before all ages in his divinity and born in recent times for our salvation from the Holy Mother of God, Mary, according to his humanity. Next paragraph. One must acknowledge one and the same Christ, the only begotten Son of God, in two natures. In duabus naturis, says the Latin. And uh, the Greek, en duophesis in two natures. The monophysites were willing to say he was made from two natures. In other words, you take the divine and the human and from them you make a for mixed and for blended thing. They were willing to say from two natures, but they wouldn't say in two natures. Chalcedon says we can, he has to be acknowledged in two natures. Without confusion, without change, without without division, and inseparable. Okay, never taking away the difference between the natures for the sake of union, but rather preserving the distinctiveness of each nature. The distinctiveness of each nature coming together in one person or subsistence, says the Latin. In unam personam vel subsistentiam. The Greek says, 
in one prosopon and one hypostasis. So, the idea of the combined nature is not one fly. The Council of Chalcedon condemns it absolutely. We have to insist that there is present in Christ the full divine nature and the full human nature, okay? Numerically two natures distinct in their particular, uh, in their distinctive traits. Without confusion, without blending, without mixture. Inseparable but distinct. Hang on to that idea. They're inseparable. In the incarnation, our Lord makes his human nature inseparable from himself. But distinct. Inseparable things can be distinct. Okay. What the Council of Chalcedon has done is simply affirm the dogmatic facts. Full divine nature with the individuating trait of the Son, full human nature with the individuating traits of Jesus, and yet it says, it asserts that, where's my hand? It asserts that these two natures combine, no, they don't combine, I'm sorry, wrong word. They concur in one hypostasis. One person or hypostasis. And since a human hypostasis is precisely what was rejected at Ephesus, it's got to be one divine hypostasis. So Chalcedon was certain. And it was an immensely courageous act. Because here you have the bishops of the church taking a giant step into darkness. They're clinging to the revealed facts without, without a new and improved theory of hypostasis. Nobody had done that yet. And the church would be in this position clinging to the revealed facts without a philosophical theory for about 800 years. 451 to about 1251. During all of that time, orthodoxy is maintained. One person or hypothesis is affirmed. But there is no adequate theory of what the heck a hypothesis is. With the dogmatic facts in place, securely in place, it has to be the case that St. Basil's definition is wrong. His recipe is incomplete. Something else is needed. All right. I want to get you thinking about what else can be needed. Look. The definition that he put forward says a hypothesis is common nature plus individuating traits, and that's not enough. If that were enough, we'd have two hypotheses in Christ. It's not enough. There's got to be another factor, the X factor, <laughs> that makes a hypothesis. And on his divine side, Christ has it, and on his human side, doesn't have it. What? is the X. Okay? Now, I want you to notice that from the time of St. Basil onward, everybody agreed that by a hypothesis we meant the concrete individual of a given nature. Okay? 
I want you to think of the nature which is U.S. currency $100 bill. I want you to think of the nature of that type thing. If St. Basil's definition is complete, you go from the general nature to a concrete thing in the real simply by adding individuating details. That's all you need to do. Add enough individuating details and bingo, you have hypostasis. Okay? Now then. You can try this on your own anytime you like. You can take any nature you please. I'm picking the nature of a $100 bill. I want you to start giving that $100 bill individuated traits. Okay. Think of a serial one. Think of um, uh, 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 little wrinkles in one of the corners, a little rip in the bottom. I want you to think of every individuating trait you can think of. Okay. Now, I have been working on this for a long time. I have thought of ever so many individuating traits, including the individuating trait of being in my right pocket tonight. Oh, really? And no matter how many of these details I put in, that pocket remains stubbornly empty. friends, you cannot get to a concrete thing in the real, which is what a hypothesis is supposed to be, by adding details to a combination. You have to add something else to it. Yeah. Substance. Ah. Substance. Well, you can think of everything, but it's still in your mind, right? It's still in your mind. Yeah, that's right. Uh, let me um, okay. let me um, get you thinking about the problem in another way. I want you to think about what you would say exists in the straightforward sense of exist. When I say there's a desk in this room. I mean, this concrete thing exists. This water bottle exists. You exist. I exist. This book exists. I'm talking about things that we can pick out with ordinary concrete nouns. A man, a dog, a book, a desk, an angel. Those are the things that we say exist in the straightforward sense of exist. Now, are those things picked out by concrete nouns? Are those things natures? Is a book a nature? Oh. Is this book a nature? No. It has a nature. Yes. It is not a nature. It has a nature. Is this desk a nature? It has one. It is not itself one, right? Am I a nature? No. I have one. Ditto for you. A concrete noun picks out a thing that has a nature. And it's concrete nouns of which we can say in the straightforward sense that they exist. Okay. In this straightforward sense, this ordinary straightforward sense, human nature does not exist. I exist. You exist. But human nature does not exist. Okay. Now, if I went around my school <laughs> and said, you know what, natures don't exist, 
I think I'd be strung up. <laughs> I would instantly be accused of nominalism or some horrible <laughs> philosophical mistake. I'm not denying that natures are factors in the real. Human nature is a real factor in human beings. It sets constraints on how far we can be manipulated or changed, how far we are malleable by the radical experiments of crackpot governments. <laughs> Human nature puts limits on all that, right? Human nature is a real factor. And I'm prepared to say that it exists in a secondary sense, in a weaker sense. It's around. But it's not what we say exists in the ordinary sense of the word. If something exists in the ordinary sense of the word, you can sit next to it on the bus. Okay. Now, I can sit next to you on the bus, but I cannot sit next to human nature. Can't be done. I can even sit next to a bottle of water in the bus. Not very good companionship, but I can't sit next to bottle nature. Is it clear what I'm saying? But I'm, this is not really fancy metaphysics. I'm about to get fancy, but hang on. <laughs> now, if there's anything that a concrete thing in the real does, it exists. But what exists is not in nature nor a nature with details at it. What exists is always the haver of a nature. A haver of book nature, a haver of bottle nature, a haver of human nature, a haver of divine nature. The Father is one haver of divine nature, the Son is another, the Holy Spirit is a third. Is that all right? What we need to fill in fill out, complete the definition left to us by St. Basil should now be clear. The common nature with individuating traits plus a haver of the nature. Okay. That's the X factor. A haver of it. The nature has to be had by something. The details have to be had by something. This is what the fancy word subsistence means. To say that a nature um, subsists is to say it has a haver. Something has it. Let me ask you another question. Are you part of human nature? Like an ingredient of human nature, pardon? No. The havers of a nature are not parts of a nature. You can have all the parts of a nature and thus have a full human nature. And having all those parts would not include there being a haver of the nature. That's a different issue. Okay. Now, in our order, there is exactly one haver of the two natures. The divine haver, the one who has the divine nature, is also the one who has the human nature. There's no human haver of that nature in Christ. There's only the divine haver of it. Does this make sense to everybody? Okay. This is getting towards clarity. It's a subsisting is a matter of having a nature. That which has a nature subsists. In Christ, the eternal Son, who has divine nature, also has the full human nature with all of its individuating traits. So in Christ there is one divine hypothesis equals 
one divine haver of both natures. Now, as I started to say before, the main thing that the haver of a nature does and the nature itself does not is exist in the straightforward sense of the word in which the guy next to you on the bus exists or the chair next to you exists. Yes? Existing is something the haver of a nature does. Not the nature directly. The haver of the nature. Okay. And if there is just one haver of the two natures in Christ, then there's just one doer of existing in Christ. There's just one <laughs> act of existing in Christ. And that is the divine act of existing. That's why he is completely adorable in his human nature. You are not an idolater if you kiss the feet of Jesus. Because those feet exist with the divine act of existence. You are not an idolater if you reverence the sacred heart of Jesus. Because that heart exists and beats with the divine existence. Yes. I don't. You may have noticed. <laughs> I exercise a human act of existence. That's all there is to me. Okay. And I do this because my case of human nature is had by a human habit. That's what it means to say I am a human person. My case of human nature is had by a human habit. So all there is to me is a human being. I suspect the same is true. It's all there is to me. A human being. That's all you want. But in Christ, that's not all there is to him. His case of human nature is had by a divine haver who does the divine act of being and every detail of our Lord's humanity exists with that one divine act of being. That's why he is adorable and worshipable throughout because there is just one haver of the two natures, we can also put together sentences which are absolutely true, but put together traits, one from one nature and one from the other. Sentences like this. The creator of the universe thirsted on the cross. With the Father and the Son as the creator of the universe, that's a trait taken from his divine nature. Did he thirst? Absolutely, it says so. I thirst on the cross in his human nature. You can say that the one who thirsted is the one who made the heavens. The creator of water thirsted. You can make that identification because the two natures have one hour of both natures. And as a result of the one hour, one act of existence. Now, the position I've just laid out for you about what it is to subsist, namely to be the haver of a nature, and how a common noun signifies. A common noun like book means a haver of book nature. A common noun like man means a haver of human nature. All of that analysis, and all stuff about existence as well, I got from a book written after 1251. So that's 800 years after the Council of I got it from the Psalm of St. Thomas. 
So the church had to wait 800 years for this issue to be looked at in a way that brought out with clarity the metaphysical death. And some people never did get it. There are still metaphysicians who think that you can coax things into reality by adding details. The real does not emerge from generality by adding specificity. The real emerges by existential act done by a haver of a nature. And that's how the real emerges. Now this perhaps is a bit more philosophy than many people would care to pursue in any length of time. All I need you to do is see St. Basil's perfectly sensible looking definition. And experience the fact that something was missing from it. The struggle of the church to avoid Nestorianism and every one of the other ancient heresies, Christological heresies, forced the church to see that there was more to this business of being a hypothesis than St. Basil requires. By the way, you know why his definition works perfectly so well in the Trinity? Because the divine nature is self-subsistent. It's not a separate problem with the divine nature. They didn't even need to talk about it as long as you were thinking of the Trinity. But our nature is not self-subsistent. Our nature doesn't automatically have a haver or havers. In that respect, we're like the dodos. Dodo nature okay, has come in bad come in bad times. It has no havers anymore. We could come into such bad times. Human nature doesn't of itself have havers of it. Ditto for dodo nature, not so for the divine nature. So as long as you were talking about the Trinity, you didn't need to face the X factor. But when you came to talk about our Lord, you were looking at a created nature as well as the divine nature. Created natures are dodo-like. They don't automatically have heavens. And so the X factor emerged into clarity of consciousness when you had a few geniuses like St. Thomas to help you figure it out. Well, thank you all very much for your attention these weeks. And um, I hope you have enjoyed it as much as I have. Thank you very much.